A chance encounter can change a life, and a few words misspoken may irrevocably set a course for destruction. Indeed, hatred can seem tasty to those with an appetite for annihilation. But so too, contact between haters and the ones they hate can sometimes produce positive results. Just ask a former neo-Nazi. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Just wanna be misunderstood, wanna be feared in my neighborhood. Just wanna be a moody man, say things that nobody can understand. I wanna be obscure and oblique, inscrutable and vague, so hard to pin down. I wanna leave open mouths when I speak, want people to cry when I put them down. Growing up, I was lonely, and I started to withdraw and become very angry. I'd felt marginalized and bullied, and frankly, I didn't know who I was, where I belonged. I was lost, and overnight, I'd gone to full-blown Nazi overnight. And I myself committed acts of violence against people solely for the color of their skin or the God that they prayed to. Just wanna be misunderstood. I wanna be feared in my neighborhood. Just wanna be a moody man. Say things that nobody can understand. Christian Picciolini is the author of a book entitled White American Youth, My Descent into America's Most Violent Hate Movement and How I Got Out. He is not only the author of this book, but he is also a regular contributor to MSNBC. He's also an Emmy Award-winning director and producer. He's also been a participant at a TEDx event as a key speaker. He's what many people would call a global peace activist, and certainly a reforming voice against extremism of all sorts and types. Christian's life changed in an alley between two streets, one called Union, the other one called Division, which would prove to be significant omens for the way his life would go. His life would go awry in relation to Union and Division. He was approached by a 20-year-old man While he was toking a joint, he was 14, the man was twice his age, 28. Christian Picciolini has for nearly a quarter of a century now been denouncing racism. He's moved away from violent extremism by turning his back on the American neo-Nazi movement, which he had formerly embraced and was able to propagate its ugliness to a high extent. He has no longer been associated with that which is evil, but in fact has been associated with that which is affirming of the human spirit and preferring to look at people, even those who are, well, the most unlikely and undesirable persons, with compassion. In fact, that is a key note 
of his, well, philosophy to life. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome to Watching America, Christian Picciolini. Did I do a reasonable encapsulation of your life? Yes, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. That was very uh, thorough. Well, let me ask you, uh, when you were on those streets and, you, and, and your parents were Italian immigrants, uh, you're living in South Ch- Chicago, and um, they were hard workers. Your mother and father were working basically a beauty store, a salon of a sort, uh, and they were putting in extremely long hours, uh, seven days a week, sometimes 14 hours a day. So even though you were greatly loved, you were also in a sense neglected, not by intention, but by well-meaning oversight. Is that accurate? Yeah, growing up, I was born in, in 1973 as the first child of Italian immigrants who had come over to the United States in the mid-1960s. And when they arrived, they were often the victims of prejudice themselves. So racism uh, wasn't uh, part of my family DNA, so to speak. Uh, and I was raised with a lot of love. But because my parents are immigrants, they had to work extremely hard, uh, like you mentioned, sometimes seven days a week, 14 hours a day to run a small beauty shop uh, that they had started. So, you know, there wasn't a lack of love, but there was a lack of presence from my parents. So growing up, I had struggled uh, to understand why my parents weren't around. And I often blamed myself for them not being there. Uh, you know, as a young person, you don't have the maturity to know to ask or communicate your feelings. So I internalized them and I struggled with three very important things in my life. And that was a sense of identity, community, and purpose. Uh, and at 14 years old, when I was standing in an alley and I was smoking that joint, a man walked up to me and he promised me all three of those things and delivered. So were you, in a sense, not to trivialize it, but were you the proverbial latchkey kid? Yeah, I think even more than that, uh, you know, I really had no guardrails growing up. I didn't act out very much because I was surrounded by, you know, grandparents and aunts and uncles, and there was always a a family presence there. But um, there were also no rules. So, you know, it got to the point where as a teenager and I was looking to be seen, uh, I started to make a very, very loud noise um, and kind of had free roam with not a whole lot of rules in my family. The issue of being 14 is significant because particularly young males, they are looking to imprint on persons. uh, They are looking for guidance. Um, And I don't mean this with any disregard to the American uh, armed forces, but even the American armed forces in its advertising program, they know that young men want to be affirmed. So, you know, it used to be be or you can be an army of one and things of this nature. Uh, young male psyches are particularly vulnerable to older males coming up to them and saying, hey, you're special. You need to know this. Follow me. Everything will work out. It sounds to me that that is what essentially happened with this person who I believe was called Clark Martle approaching you. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Uh, You know, he saw in me a vulnerable but idealistic young person who had a very magic age of 14, which seems to be the moment when, you know, young people, young males break away from the influence of their family for the first time. They start to develop a sense of independence, but without really the maturity to, to find identity, community, and purpose in positive ways. So when he came up to me, it was very much, uh, you know, like an army recruiter or very much like a drill sergeant saying, you're better than that. Uh, you know, he pulled a joint out of my mouth and he even said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. 
um, before he started to then, you know, instill me with this sense of pride of who I was and of my European heritage and, and then starting to say that people wanted to take that away from me. So he was already creating an us against them narrative for me. Uh, and, uh, it, it, felt very empowering at first. I did find a sense of identity and I found a, a brotherhood and a community. And the purpose was something that uh, was very clear. It was very black and white. The ideology told me exactly what to believe. So I had gone from having those three voids, those very important things that are essentially the pillars of what make us who we are. They define our values. They inform uh, our decisions in life. And I had found identity, community, and purpose in this movement where for a very short time I was empowered by it. Well, uh, Christian, if it's all right, I'd like to pursue the, the person of Clark Martell for a moment. Uh, was he well-versed in, as distorted and as warped as it may have been, this, this 28-year-old man who approached you, was he well-versed in, in Nazism, true Nazism? Because there seems to be some uh, quizzical things. First of all, you are a descendant of Western European culture. You're, you're Italians, okay? So, mm -hmm. all right. And was he aware of Mussolini? Was he aware of the connection between Mussolini and Hitler? Was he a purist Hitler? Or was it a mishmash of all gobbledygook type of thought? You know, Clark Martel was a, a brilliant uh, but very twisted man. Uh, you know, he was very similar to what somebody might think a Charles Manson was, you know, very charismatic, uh, but also, you know, I think probably was dealing with some psychological demons as well. This was a man who allegedly at nine years old had found a copy of Mein Kampf in the school library and had read it, you know, from cover to cover and understood that very, very well. Uh, Clark, uh, you know, was very well versed in, in national socialism and communism and, and all sorts of, you know, ideological uh, bents. Uh, and he, he was almost forceful in his way of how people would adhere to that and how they would, uh, you know, adhere to their beliefs and their ideology. So what was the first, like, uh, treatise? What was, the, what was the first literature that he gave you and said, read this and this will set you straight? It was a book um, by an individual named George Lincoln Rockwell, and the book was called White Power. George Lincoln Rockwell was the commander of the American Nazi Party, um, and uh, you know during the the forties and 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 thirties uh, had really, and fifties even had really uh, kind of solidified this neo Nazism in the United States. And so would you bring this literature home and keep it under your bed, or was it going on beneath your mother and father's noses, so to speak? You know, it was really happening under their noses. They didn't know what to look for. They didn't. I didn't give them any signs at first of which direction I was going. I certainly was more withdrawn and, and was more confident in, in myself because of the movement that I had joined. But I was also still, you know, a 14-year-old. Uh, kid who was worried about what his parents thought. So, you know, there was some hiding going on. Uh, you know, I started to collect books and traded, uh, you know, photocopied pamphlets that I was then, um, you know, running copies off uh, for people like Clark Martell. We were trading uh, materials and propaganda with other, uh, you know, white supremacists around the country and around the world, really. So if you're um, 14 and 15, uh, Christian, um, you don't have a lot of mobility. So was he picking you up and saying, hey, I'll give you a ride and we're going to go to this rally or something like that? Um, were you that connected at that age or was it progressive by the time you're 16, you have access to a car perhaps? 
Yeah, by the time I was 16, I had access to a car. But at 14 and 15, everything happened locally. So a lot of people don't know this, but the American neo-Nazi skinhead movement, which was, you know, informed by uh, British skinheads, had started in Chicago, on the south side of Chicago, near that alley where I was recruited. So a lot of skinhead activity was happening in the mid-80s and and late 80s in, in and around Chicago. So there wasn't a need to really travel, but very soon... After that, I did start to travel all across the United States and at uh, 18 years old traveled to Europe uh, as the first American uh, white supremacist band to leave the United States to to perform in Europe. Well, you got into music and I'll I'll get into that in a moment. But um, before we get there, I'd like to know what were the first manifestations of adornments on your person, clothing, attire that gave any indication or hint that you were uh, becoming immersed in the neo-Nazi movement? I mean, surely you didn't come to the dinner table one day wearing a a SWAT sticker. But what was the first evolution? Was it tight jeans? Was it uh, military boots? You must have changed your person somehow visually. Clark Martell uh, actually gave me my first pair of army boots. Um, skinheads typically wore Dr. Martin's boots, uh, but uh, as a 14-year-old, I was given a pair of combat boots from an army thrift store and uh, you know, nylon bomber jacket, and then I shaved my head, and then the patches went on the coat, and it was very literally about wearing what I believed on my sleeve. And, you know, the, the the indoctrination happened mostly through music. Music was probably the most powerful tool for propaganda uh, as far as attracting young people. And right, right away, uh, the fashion and the lifestyle and the music was um, intoxicating. In high school, you start to, to change. For anyone just joining us right now, this is Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And my guest is Christian Picciolini. Uh, who was a former skinhead, former member of the neo-Nazi um, movement and uh, a significant entity at that uh, and a propagator of uh, of hatred. You wrote at one point, or were rather quoted at one point, regarding uh, Blue Island. And where exactly is Blue Island? Blue Island is on the southwest edge of Chicago. And you wrote uh, regarding or were quoted uh, with the following. My dream is to come back to Blue Island and to see a, the N-word, hanging from every light pole up and down Western Avenue. So in other words, you're saying that your dream at that point was to come back to where you had been living, Blue Island, that section of Chicago, and to see African-Americans suspended being hung from every light fixture pole uh, on Western Avenue. You're saying that, are you not in high school? I believe I would have said that around the age of 16 or 17. Um, That was said, uh, if I recall, at a meeting, uh, a recruitment meeting, when there was a room full of probably 40 or 50, uh, you know, young men and girls between the ages of 15 and, and 22 or 23 years old. And like my music, that same rhetoric was uh, was filling um, the choruses of my music. It was filling the lyrics uh, to both inspire, to terrify, but to also encourage uh, acts of violence against people. So let's talk about the music now at this point. Um, uh, I'm imagining you with, uh, you know, a Gibson guitar and, and, you know, I don't know if you're doing thrash rock or what kind of style it was. What was the style of the actual genre besides the lyrical content? Was it speed metal? What were you doing? 
No, it was it was kind of a, a, a tamer version of punk rock uh, music, which was my basis before you know I even became uh, politicized into that movement. Um, you know, reminiscent of a style of, of British music called oi music. Right. Um, you know, very simple. I don't think I was playing a Gibson guitar. If anything, it was some, you know, third-rate model of, of electric guitar. Uh, but for that band, I was singing. Uh, I was writing the lyrics and I was singing. And, it, you know, it was a powerful way to entice youth because that was our social network before the internet. Concerts were a way for us to gather people from not just our local area, but from around the country. It was the way that we saw people we communicated with through writing letters to post office boxes. And it was our way, uh, sort of a pep rally, to um, both inspire people who were in the movement, but also to recruit new people into the movement, into this kind of dynamic party atmosphere um, that was intent on on really race war. Well, regarding the concept of groupthink, within the neo-Nazi movement, was there ever even a slight hint of a dissenting voice where somebody in the group, uh, if not yourself, then somebody else with a dissenting voice was indicating some degree of sanity and rethinking perhaps and saying, you know, maybe we're a bit tad extreme without the whole group Jumping on them. I mean, would one have the temerity? That would one have the 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 bravery, um, the courage to say such a thing? No, I never heard anything like that. At least in a sincere sense, that they wanted to change things for the better. I did hear a lot of rumblings of people once pressure was applied to groups through law enforcement and things like that uh, to tone down the rhetoric to blend in. It was a strategy more than it was, you know, common sense or, or somebody having a change of heart. I think it was a strategy to become invisible. Uh, no, you know, it wasn't really an environment where people could have been vulnerable or could have been uh, honest, even if they were questioning it or if they did have, you know, a change of heart. It wasn't something that, you know, you really wanted to, uh, you know, put out there for other people because being vulnerable in, in extremist movements in general is, is seen as a sign of weakness. So well, nobody, I think, was was courageous enough to, to do that, even if they did believe it. Well, you started to recruit yourself and you targeted young people. Who were the ideal candidates, whether you had formally deduced this or not, but in retrospect, who were the ideal candidates for you to recruit to be interested in joining your um, nefarious movement? You know, I think it, recruiting for an extremist uh, movement is very similar to, you know, other extremist behaviors, things like crime or drug use or prostitution. We were looking for people who didn't appear to have very much connection to uh, a home life, who seem to have traumatic issues throughout their life where they were looking to blame somebody, where they were angry, where they had grievances, even in cases where uh, there were disabilities because we knew we could find ways to empower people, um, you know, through the movement. Um, essentially, we were looking for those who who looked like they could use somebody to blame for, um, you know, issues in their lives. I call those things that, that detour people to extremism potholes, those things that occur to us in life, things like trauma, abuse, uh, mental illness, uh, you know, all those things that sometimes we have struggles with trying to repair or navigate around. Those types of things can de detour us to the fringes where extremist narratives of all sorts are waiting for people. And again, that can be crime, it can be suicide, it can be drug abuse, it can be, uh, you know, domestic abuse, or it can be extremism. 
at one point you said that you started to actually stockpile weapons for war. Um, where were you hiding them? In, in, in your parents' basement, in the ground? Well, I, you know, I moved out at 15 years old. I was essentially on my own. Uh, I've, you know, I was very intent on punishing my parents for what I felt that they had done to me. So once they figured out that I was involved, they were horrified and they tried everything that they could. But by then, you know, it, in, at least in my eyes, it was too late. I wanted to then uh, get back at them for what they had done. Were you so uh, officially out. emancipated or did you just take off? No, I just took off. Uh, yeah. I just took off. And, and, you know, for the first year, I, I essentially commandeered the basement apartment that had been sitting empty in, in my parents' building. Uh, and then after that, uh, kind of went off on my own. Well, things begin to change. And uh, one of the main occurrences is the introduction of a very lovely young lady. Uh, and uh, she, as you have said elsewhere, did not have an ounce of prejudice in her or animosity seemingly against anyone. A good Irish girl. And you were married at 19 to a great girl. And you have a boy and then you have another boy. And you start to question yourself, self-examine, and recognize that perhaps you have some degree of self-hatred. Can you explain that? Yeah, you know, at 19, well, at 18, when I when I met my wife, and, and, and 19 when we had our son, and, and at 21 when we had our second son, it really was the first time in my life that something else had questioned uh, my sense of identity, community, and purpose. I had something to love for the first time in my life, whereas, uh, you know, I spent the first 18 or 19 years of my life either hating myself or hating other people because I hated myself. You know, I, I was struggling with with my identity, community, and purpose. I didn't know if I was Italian or if I was American growing up because I lived in this Italian bubble on the south side of Chicago uh, that was very protective. Um, but I wanted to be American because that's what I saw on television. That's what people, you know, around me were. Uh, and I never really thought I fit in into either, um, you know, category. Um, I was looking for a family uh, because I felt as if my own family had abandoned me. And uh, as far as purpose, I didn't know, you know who I was at 14. And at 18, I, I still didn't really truly know who I was. But when, I, when my children were born, I had to ask myself, am I a father or am I a hate monger? Uh, the two could not coexist. I couldn't see them coexisting. Uh, you know, in community, I had to challenge myself again. Uh, was it the one I had physically given life to or was it the one I'd surrounded myself with to boost my ego? So I really had a lot of self-reflection um, that I was going through that I didn't quite make the right decision on. I chose the movement because I was too afraid to start over. I was too afraid to abandon that sense of identity, community, and purpose to take a chance at starting over. And of course, it was the wrong decision at the time. Well, being of Italian descent, your wife, mother of your child, being of Irish descent, it is reasonable to assume that there was at least a high degree of Catholicism in your consciousness on some level. How did you reconcile even a perhaps diluted form of Catholicism, whether or not you went to Mass, but the, the basic tenets of Christianity? How did you reconcile that with so much hatred? You know, that's a really interesting question. I grew up going to Catholic schools my whole life. I grew up going to Catholic Mass with my grandparents. Uh, and I even, uh, when I was in high school, even though I went to you know six different high schools, four of them were Catholic schools. 
and very quickly, I think early on, started to really abandon my faith. I saw it as very subservient. I saw it as as kind of blind, uh, you know, following. So I always had kind of an issue with it, even though eventually what I went into was this whole idea of, you know, blind following of a faith, of an ideology. Um, But when I left, uh, you know, Catholicism, I never really looked back. It didn't really inform me as part of who I was in that movement. Um, But having that foundation of, of, you know, at least in my family, being compassionate and, and being empathetic, I think did remain with me. So when I started to meet people who were different than me, who had challenged me, um, I did have kind of an underlying level of compassion for them, even though outwardly my suit of armor was very hateful. Well, let's visit that. What eventually happens is you um, are able to tour of a sort and, and have various concerts where you perform with your band. Uh, you're a lyricist, you're a songwriter. Um, you love music to the extent that you also want to uh, work in retail with collected works of, of various sorts of white supremacy music, and you start your own record store. And the name of the record store was? Chaos Records. Okay. And so when you have your record store, you realize that there's really an insufficient supply of stock to sell just of white supremacist music. So you have to incorporate other types of music, which you do. And as a consequence of that, you have other clientele coming in that you would not have normally have invited. So you have Jewish people come in, gay people come in, and African-American people come in. And there was one particular occasion when a particular African-American youth came in and you noticed that they were downcast and seemed extremely sad and you inquired as to why. Tell us what happened then. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I'd opened this record store to sell this racist music that I was importing uh, and making at the time, but I also knew I couldn't sustain my store solely on that. I had to incorporate other music like hip-hop and punk rock and heavy metal and and uh, other sorts of music, and and I had a, a clientele that knew who I was. You know, I was very uh, even prior to the internet at that time in the you know mid '90s was pretty vocal and visible about who I was. So everybody in in the surrounding area knew about my store. Uh, but despite that, people still came in to uh, buy the music that wasn't racist. People who were black or who were uh, Latino or gay or Jewish. And at first I was very standoffish. You know, I was interested in taking their money. I wanted to be a good business person, so I certainly didn't chase them out of my store. But I also wasn't very forthcoming with them. Um, And over time, uh, you know, they kept coming back and they kept, I think, looking back now, they kept coming in to challenge me with compassion. Uh, Because every time they came in, even though they knew who I was, they still treated me with a lot of respect. And then one day, um, a you know, an African-American teen who had been in the store many, many times, um, you know, always kind of acting goofy and very funny. Uh, One day he was very subdued and and rather sad. And I had asked him what was wrong. Um, You know, probably didn't even mean to get an answer from him. But when he replied, he said his mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And suddenly I could relate to that. I could relate to that because my own mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And the conversation changed. It got very personal. It got, you know, it was almost as if I had f- was f- forgetting who I was speaking with. Uh, and, uh, and we connected. And I always remembered that. And I think that was one of the first moments where I started to let my guard down, where I started to then want to be more um, compassionate and empathetic to the people that I had come across in the store. 
Uh, but certainly, again, it wasn't a safe place uh, for me to voice my confusion. Uh, so it was very internalized until uh, you know I became so embarrassed of selling the racist music that I eventually eliminated it from the inventory. And, and because it was so much of my revenue, I had to eventually close the store. One of the facets of cultic uh, behavior, uh, being in a cult, is monitoring of each other. So when you have this encounter with this African-American young man and you are in point of fact recognizing his humanity and you're seeing beyond his skin, beyond the epidermis, beyond the pigment, and you're recognizing his soul and his emotion, intellect and needs, uh, how did you handle the, the fear of perhaps somebody like a Clark Martell walking in at that precise moment? And if they had, would you have simply turned away from the black young man at that point? That's a really good question. Um, I think at the time, um, you know, my the store was a way for me to try and find some control in my life uh, because I was married at the time and I was trying to pull away from the movement just to appease my wife because I had promised her uh, that the store was kind of a compromise, that I would get off the street, I would stop leading the group that I was leading at the time, and I would try and legitimize. Uh, and of course, she wasn't completely happy with it because I was still involved in selling this music, but to her it was, you know, it was better than, than leading a gang, essentially. <clears throat> Had somebody noticed at the time, I probably at the time would have lied and said that I was just trying to be a good business person and that I was trying to, you know, make some money off of the enemy. Uh, because I wouldn't have been brave enough to to be honest. In fact, it took me almost five years after I left the movement to to uh, publicly denounce it. I tried to outrun my past before I, I decided to tackle it head on. Well, eventually, you stopped selling white power merchandise, and that costs you figuratively and literally. And you lose your business, you lose your wife, you lose your sons, and in a sense, you lose yourself. How did you make it through? It was a struggle. Um, I spent uh, almost five years after I left uh, the movement and lost my business and my livelihood and my family, uh, suffering a, a depression that was very deep. Uh, I would wake up um, wishing that I hadn't. And I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I belonged anymore. And I certainly didn't know what my purpose was. Um, one of the things that really saved me at the time was being a father um, and my children and focusing on them. And then uh, in 2004, uh, my younger brother, who was 10 years younger than me, uh, who had sort of followed in my footsteps, not in that movement, but with um, you know other street gangs, lost his life to gun violence. Uh, and it was right around 2004 when I decided that I wanted to try and, and help people um, the way that I wish somebody would have intervened and helped me. Um, and that's when I started doing the, the work of disengagement from extremism. So would you say that was the key pivotal moment? I think it was a key pivotal moment. I think it was a snowball. Uh, I had questions and doubts every day of the almost nine years that I was involved in the white supremacist movement. Um, I didn't come from that sort of foundation. So going in, it was a foreign world to me that I learned and that I accepted, but always still had this underlying current of doubt, um, which I stuffed further and further away the longer I was involved until it started to come up again when I started to put myself in situations where I was engaging with people who were the other 
when before that I never had done that. I'd never really put myself in situations to understand the people that I thought I hated uh, until I started to realize then that, you know, really it was self-hatred that I was projecting onto other people to absolve me of, of my pain. Well, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. Life can be stranger than fiction. So the man with military boots and uh, vile things tattooed on either sleeve of his arm winds up because of the intervention of a very caring female, not a love interest, but a female friend, advises you to go and work for industrial business machine company, otherwise known as IBM. And lo and behold, you actually get a job. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm probably as surprised as the listeners are now, too, when I got that job offer. You know, I, around 1999, when I was going through this depression, a friend came to me and she said, you know, I don't want you to die. And uh, we should try something different. And I was all ears, of course, because nothing I was doing to try and outrun my past was was fulfilling me. I was treating other people with respect, but I was still miserable inside. Uh, and um, she asked me to go apply for a job at IBM where she had started to work several months earlier. And, um, you know, she was a friend, so I decided I'm going to go, but I knew I wasn't going to get the job. But uh, they asked me to come back for another interview and then another interview and uh, offered me a job. It was an entry-level position uh, installing computers at corporations and at universities who had um, decided to, re you know, redo all their computers. And I was so thrilled because it was something. It was something to look forward to. It was a change. It was positive. Uh, and I was thrilled until they told me where I would be going my first day of work. Um, and I suddenly was not so thrilled anymore because I was going to be going back to my old high school, the same one I'd been kicked out of twice, to install their computers on my first day of work. Well, let me give you a little bit of background, if I may. Um, this is, ironically, a high school called Eisenhower high school. And I'm just wondering if the irony ever struck you that Eisenhower uh, was responsible for desegregating the U.S. military. <laughs> so you have a white supremacist at a high school, uh, in part named after a man who was very instrumental in starting to break down barriers. Um, but you were expelled from the school twice. And on the second occasion, because of a security guard, a black gentleman by the name of Mr. Johnny Holmes, and he was a black security guard, and you had gone to punch him, and fisticuffs uh, were fully, completely in action. And uh, as a result of that, you were expelled the second time. Now, as a result of working for IBM, you are assigned, as you've, as you've just indicated, to go back to this high school. You're hoping to heaven that no one's going to recognize you. And lo and behold, you run into Mr. Johnny Holmes. How did that go down? You know, it happened in the first, you know, 10 or 15 minutes I, I showed up uh, and I was so afraid because I, you know, I knew somebody was going to recognize me even though eight years had gone by since I'd been at that school. I'd caused a lot of problems there, certainly, you know, violence and, and drama and staged sit-ins for a white student union and protests. Uh, I was not welcome there. Well, you've that. also indicated that people like poor Mr. Johnny Holmes, in your mind, ought to have been hanging from every light fixture and That's pole right. up and down Western Avenue. So I'm sure it's it's not going to uh, warm people up to you exactly. Continue. Yeah, no, it was it was definitely not a, a safe place for for me to to try and start a new life. At least I didn't think so. Uh, and when I saw him, uh, you know, of course, in the first 15 minutes that I'm there, as karma would have it. Um, 
I just, I didn't know what to do. I froze. Uh, he didn't recognize me, but I had recognized him and, and I saw him leaving the school and going out to the parking lot to his vehicle. I decided I was just going to run after him. I would figure it out when I got there. Um, and when I got to him as he was getting into his car and I tapped him on the shoulder and this was a man who was always very kind of jolly and happy and had a smile on his face. When he turned around and recognized me, well, he was not that jolly, happy man. He was afraid. Um, and he took a step back and I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do, but I decided that I was going to say, I'm sorry. Uh, and he shook my hand and he accepted my apology, but he also said, you know, that makes you feel very good, I'm sure, but it doesn't do a whole lot for me and what you've put me through. Uh, and you know, over time and over that conversation, he essentially challenged me to start telling my story, to start examining why, um, because he recognized in me that I wasn't just some white kid who went, you know, and became a neo-Nazi. I was every kid that he had ever watched over who could have gone in some, you know, really dark pathway, um, and in some cases did. Um, and he really, you know, he really saw in me. Um, an ability to be able to share this story so that it could reach other people. And of course, I was afraid to do that. I didn't know how to do that. Uh, but I promised him I would. Uh, and um, and eventually I started to do that and, and it changed my life. Well, uh, I, I and, owe it to my, to my listeners to explain that Christian Picciolini uh, is a very big man. Uh, you are robust. You are strong. You have arms about the size of my thighs. And you were a very intimidating figure. Uh, I've seen imagery of you, and I'm sure right now a bunch of people are, are probably hitting their phones and wanting to look up the image of you. Um, but you were an imposing man, uh, without question, so I can understand why this gentleman, moreover, you've punched him before, so it's understandable that he'd be very, very leery uh, of you, let alone your rhetoric and what you had written uh, with nefarious plans for his people uh, and his race. But then he says, I forgive you. What did that do for you when you heard it? Could you believe it? Or did you think it was a defense mechanism? No, I believed it. I believed it. I mean, and certainly it, it took a little time for him to say that. He didn't say it right when I apologized. He wanted to hear me out. Um, and I think he saw in me that, you know, I was still kind of that vulnerable kid, even though I was probably 29 or 30 at that point when I come across him. And, and he really kind of took me under his wing again. I'm happy to say that, you know, even 20 years later now, uh, we're still close friends and he's still my mentor. And this is a man that I have a very, very deep respect for. Christian, I want to go back to that moment. So he apologizes and he says, uh, or rather you apologize. And he says, okay, but you know, and you kind of says, okay, I'll accept the apology. And then he goes on to say, but, you know, you've been quite a, a form of misery for me. When he accepted your apology and you went back into your car and went home that night, what were your thoughts? I was afraid. Why? I what were you afraid of? I was afraid because I had promised him that I would self-reflect and I would share my story of what I've learned and I was afraid to do that because I was afraid of being judged the same way that I had judged people for eight years. Were you also um, afraid of people who who were still in the movement? Oh, yeah, of course I was. So, I mean, okay, I, so I, you were afraid essentially of those inside and those outside. Yeah, I didn't have – it was almost a man without a, a country at that point. I, you know, I had left the family that I'd surrounded myself with who now saw me as a traitor – 
but the outside world also didn't necessarily want me back. Um, so I was really trying to figure out who I was and where I fit in for, for years. Well, it makes sense I to left. me too also because if, if I may interject here, you're working for IBM, which is a pretty conservative corporation to say the least. I mean, Big Blue. And now you're going to disclose that you're a former neo-Nazi. <laughs> it, it could have yeah. caused major complications. Was that a fear you had as well added to everything else? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, I was afraid of of, uh, of all of uh, you know the repercussions of of coming out. Um, you know, would people believe me? Would they even recognize the person that I was talking about? Uh, would they see me as a liability? Um, you know, and this was all essentially before the internet. Um, you know, there wasn't, there weren't, you know, social media posts laying around about who I was or what I had said. There was recorded music, but that was the extent of it. But I was still terrified because I didn't know if I had forgiven myself at that point. Uh, I certainly was in a better place, but I had not learned how to forgive myself. And it was actually Mr. Holmes who encouraged me. Uh, not only to go out and seek forgiveness, but to find ways to forgive myself for what I had done. Now, most things have small beginnings, including your involvement with the neo-Nazi movement or from, you know, having a, a joint that you were talking on being removed from your mouth. Uh, and then it progressed. Coming out, no doubt, started small, I would imagine, and then progressed. Uh, you now speak regularly to thousands of people at a time. What was your first coming out event, if you will, where you said, and declared, I was a former manager and propagator of hate. It was an accident. Um, it was actually about a year after um, the interaction with Mr. Holmes uh, in the parking lot. And I was still struggling with trying to figure out how to discuss it, how to bring it up. It was uncomfortable. Uh, but one day I was walking through a shopping mall in Chicago, and uh, it was in the summer. I had, was wearing short sleeves, and I still had some of my old tattoos that were visible. Um, and um, I think it was around 2000 or 2001, but I was walking through the mall and a man stopped me and he saw my tattoo and he, he pulled me aside and he said, hey, bro, white power. Uh, he had recognized the tattoo as something that, you know, was of his ideology. And when he said that, I kind of uh, pulled him aside and, and I said, hey, bro, let's talk. Uh, and I had, um, it was the first time really where I had told somebody in the movement even uh, that I'd gotten out and that I'd left and I was okay with that. What was his uh, response? It, his response was just listening. He was actually very receptive to it. And at first I was afraid because here, I didn't know this person, but you know, for, you know, a traitor is universal within that movement. So if, if I tell him I'm out and I had denounced, uh, you know, whatever enemies I had at that point became his, you know, I became his enemy as well. So when uh, you walked... He, if I may interject, didn't do that. when yeah. you walked away from that encounter, which evidently was at least semi-successful, I would argue successful because he didn't, you know, uh, revolt and, and hit mm -hmm. you or go the other way. When you walked away from that and went back to your car in the parking lot and you closed the door in your car, what did you say to yourself? You know, I felt relieved because, um, you know, it ended with a handshake and it ended with him saying, huh, okay, well, that's cool. And he walked away. It wasn't, you know, you know, uh, screw you or, or, you know, you're a traitor or anything like that. It was kind of eye-opening, I think, for him. Uh, and when I, you know, remember walking away from that, not even getting to my car, but just him walking away from me, feeling relieved that I had finally told somebody. Did you determine at that moment 
that you would do this again, or were you still in the pro process of becoming uh, a spokesperson for kindness, love, peace, understanding? You know, I, I think I was a spokesperson, but I didn't know that I, I was. I mean, I certainly was trying to influence people around me, but I didn't know that that's the mission I wanted to take in life. It wasn't really until about three years later after that incident when uh, my brother was murdered that I really made a decision to, to try and, and become a voice, uh, you know, both for transformation but for compassion. For me, uh, it was really receiving compassion from the people I least deserved it from. And it's certainly not their responsibility to do that. But it was the most powerful thing for me because it replaced the demonization that was in my head with humanization and allowed me to see them as people where I had kept myself out of that. Again, it's not you know, the responsibility of the potential victim or a person of color to, you know, to try and make that bridge to you know, the evil person or the violent person. Uh, but I also have to say that receiving that sort of unexpected compassion is, is the only thing I've ever seen truly break hate. Did you recognize brokenness in most people as a universal at that point? Yes. Yes. Potholes, uh, or what I call potholes, those those traumas that are buried deep within us, the, the abuse, the grievances, was universal. Now, I'm deliberately saying this as a counterpoint because some people are going to say, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, sure, you're justifying it. Um, it's been said that if one wants to take it to the nth degree, you can, in the realm of perhaps some would say misplaced understanding, you could simply say that Hitler, um, World War II was his cry for help. What do you say to people that come back and say, yeah, okay, right, well, we can justify any kind of sin and any kind of issue that comes up, including the uh, annihilation of people groups and, and, and going off into Poland and Paris. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what drives people to do what they do, and I think it's complicated. Um, but what I would also say is that people who do things like that are accountable. Uh, I have held myself accountable for you know 23 years since leaving um, we, uh, we're, we are responsible for, for, if we are genuinely interested in change, we are responsible to clean up the messes we've created. We are responsible to tell people, uh, what we know, the insight that could help future generations not go down that path, uh, which was one major reason why I decided, uh, initially before, uh, you know, year, a decade before Charlottesville or Dylan Roof or anybody, I've been speaking about this because I saw the direction that young people were starting to go. I saw that uncertainty in our country was starting to make uh, people grasp for these fringe ideologies. And I wanted to make sure that the same thing didn't happen to them that's happening to me. So I wouldn't say that we need to justify anything, uh, you know, except to understand that there are no happy extremists. There are no self-confident extremists. I've never met one, and I've met thousands of them. Um, you know, people who are full of joy do not behead somebody. They don't plant bombs. They don't walk into a place of worship to hurt other people. So it's you know certainly not justifying it, but I think what it tells me is that we need to do a better job uh, with young people growing up. Uh, to help them fulfill positive senses of identity, community, and purpose. So there is no need to blame the other. So understanding does not equate to absolving others of the responsibility for the mayhem and the pain they've caused. Of course not. Never. You have said elsewhere that hatred is born of ignorance, 
Fear is its father, and isolation is its mother. Can you elaborate on that? You know, I think we're afraid of what we don't understand. And if we are isolated, and if we keep ourselves isolated from those things that we don't understand, sometimes those things turn into fear and hatred. Um, so, you know, we, I think we need to understand that we are all just a little bit broken, some of us more than others, but we all share that. It's universal. But it's also the, the glue, the universal glue that can bring us back together to understand that we are all slightly fractured and we need each other to make it through. I think of all the things you've referenced and said or stated, this one stands the most paramount to me in understanding who you are, Christian. You say that your view is the following. You don't push extremists away. You draw them closer and listen, to listen for their potholes. And that's what you've been doing these last few decades, isn't it? That's right. I've uh, gotten very good at tuning out the white noise of ideology and really listening um, to the underlying motivations of why people do the things that they do. Uh, and sometimes it's not what they say that informs me. It's what they don't say. Define forgiveness. Well, I think that for me, forgiveness is doing everything I can to try and repair the harm that I've caused. Uh, and I think that that's paramount. Uh, I think that that is important to this process of disengagement or de-radicalization, you know, that some people call it. I'm not a fan of that word. Uh, we've had radicals who have changed the world for the better, radical artists and doctors and scientists. And, and my goal is really to try and, and rebuild and refocus the radical. What is the most important, poignant thing in what you have done that has touched you the most or perhaps brought you to tears? You know, every situation when I see an immersion of somebody who used to hate, um, you know, coming into contact with somebody that they're supposed to hate and them walking away feeling more connected than isolated, um, you know, it awes me every time it happens. It really watching the, the prejudice melt away and, and be replaced by humanization, I think, is, is really just awe-inspiring for me. Regarding your brother's death, his murder, how have you been able to rationalize or come to terms with it? And I'm not expecting that you should necessarily be there or anyone at this point. Have you been able to entertain the idea of forgiveness, compassion, and understanding with something literally so close to home. Yeah, I mean, I think it was one of the first things that I had to process uh, after it happened, um, you know, because I was in this mode of, of compassion and forgiveness uh, and for, for the people, you know, that frankly least deserve it. Uh, so I had to ask myself, you know, can I forgive the person who murdered my brother? And I think, you know, I had to come to the conclusion and I still feel this way that I do forgive them. Um, I don't know what they're, you know, first of all, I don't know who that person is because he was never caught. Um, but I also uh, have to believe that whatever led them to that, um, you know, maybe was something that was beyond their control. Um, maybe it was their environment or their own potholes that led them there. So while, I, you know, I certainly wish it, it didn't happen that way and I certainly wish my brother was here, um, you know, I have to understand that, you know, it was an experience that informed me 
um, that informed my family, that changed us, that uh, made us, you know, both closer and uh, and also a way to to examine who we were. Um, so, you know, I'm certainly not grateful that it happened, but uh, you know, we have to make the most of of what we're dealt with. And and to me, it's something I'm still I'm still processing. My family's still processing. Um, but it's, you know, I'm grateful that it's allowed me to, you know, to look at myself and understand why rather than act on, on feelings. Christian Picciolini, I want to tell you that you make me feel much better about each day, life, humanity, kindness. You're an affirmation of all that is good. And I am so grateful to having spent this time with you, with my audience and watching America. You are a light and a measure of that which is redeemable and worthwhile and, in fact, beautiful, sir. His book is entitled White American Youth, My Descent into America's Most Violent Hate Movement and How I Got Out. Thank you so very much, sir. God bless you. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. What the world needs now is love sweet love it's the only thing that there's just too little of what the world is now is love sweet love no not just for some but for everyone you've been listening to watching america our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time. Take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.